Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Not all marriages are built to last. Some begin to crumble and a couple must decide whether to fight to fix it or to let the whole thing blow away. On March 19, 1969, a woman lost her short and harrowing battle with an unknown illness. A woman in the middle of a desperate fight to keep her marriage going with a man who seemed to want the whole thing to come to an end. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Joan Olive Robinson Hill, born on February 6th, 1931, came from a family of status. Her father, Davis Ashton Robinson, Ash to everyone who knew him, embarked on a series of business ventures, some that lost him money and some that gained him a fortune, and married Ray Ernstein Gardier in July of 1919. The pair settled in Houston, Texas, and, after finding out that Ray could not bear children of her own, set out to adopt the perfect addition to their little family. When visiting the Edna Gladney home in Fort Worth, Ray was introduced to the utterly perfect one-month-old who they fell in love with, adopted, and named Joan. Joan had everything a young girl could want, and at the age of three, found her stride atop a horse and never looked back. 
She won her first ribbon at the age of five and, along with horse Dottie, started entering shows all across the South where she won first or second place in almost every competition that she entered. This continued well into her adulthood and, while competing professionally throughout the 1950s and 60s, Joan won as many as 500 equestrian trophies. Graduated and ready to attend college, Joan was accepted into Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, where she was described as an average student with a very active social life. A life that she lived in the least out suite of hotel rooms, her father purchased so that he could visit often and his wife could keep close to their only child. Before the age of 20, Joan had married and divorced twice, her father never approving of any of her paramours. But by 1957, she had finally found the man with whom she would spend the rest of her life with. One of Houston's leading plastic surgeons, Dr. John Hill. John Robert Hill, who had graduated summa cum laude at Abilene Christian College with a passion for music, moved on to the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and, after graduating, took up residency at Houston's Herman Hospital. During this time, Houston-based surgeons were pioneering new heart surgery techniques and attracting residents from far and wide who wished to study under their guidance, meaning John, for the first time in his life, was a very small fish in a very big pond. Not willing to sit by and realizing the city would be awash with cardiac surgeons, John decided to switch things up and opted instead to study plastic surgery in a city where, at the time, there were only 10 certified plastic surgeons practicing. He knew he could make more money this way, and before long, became one of the most popular members of his residency program, a program that was almost cut short after he perforated a patient's bowel during a routine operation and stitched up the man without repairing his mistake. The patient later died of peritonitis, but John was able to complete his residency with little to no issue. He was offered a partnership with a surgeon named Nathan Roth, joining his practice in 1963 and immediately putting strain on the relationship when he failed to warn his very first patient that a drill bit had broken off during a jaw repair operation and that it had been left embedded in the patient's face. Because John's brother had ended his life just before the incident, Nathan Roth gave his partner the benefit of the doubt and let him continue in the practice. It lasted only four more years before Nathan, tired of John's repeated request to cover him so he could perform in music recitals, dissolved their partnership, and John established his own practice housed in the same building as his former partner. By this point, John and Joan had been married for about 10 years, the first six of which were spent living in one of Ash Robinson's properties and had a son, Robert Ashton Hill, who was born in 1960. Joan, still very passionate about her equestrian career, opened up Chatsworth Farms with the help of her father, a place where she could breed horses and establish a riding school, while John devoted all his spare time to performing and listening to music. Things seemed to be going perfectly for the Robinson Hill families. Joan's farm was doing well, John's practice seemed to be flourishing, and the couple very much so in love, were raising their son in their newly purchased colonial-style home in the wealthy suburb of River Oaks, just a few blocks from Joan's parents. Now, it has been mentioned briefly, but John's passion for music, which began in very early childhood, was something that he was keen to let take up most of his life, and, much to Joan's dismay, most of his money. John, in addition to his work at his practice, dedicated at least 20 hours a week to taking lessons, practicing, and performing in concerts. 
He was an active member of several musical groups and announced one day to his wife that he intended on converting the former servants' quarters of their home into his personal music room, a project which needed a loan of about $10,000 that he asked his father-in-law for. Ash, believing the room was frivolous and had already loaned them money to buy the house to begin with, refused to give the loan, so John, never deterred, went to the bank instead, got the money to pay off Ash for the home, and hired a sound engineer to create the perfect music room, telling the man, I want the finest music room since Renaissance Italy. Those $10,000 quickly ran out, and by March of 1969, John had spent about $100,000 on this venture, 20000 of which went to the speaker system alone. The room quickly became a bone of contention in their marriage. Joan mad about the money he spent on this room and the fact that Nothing else, not she nor their son, seemed to matter to John. Nothing except maybe the woman whom he began an affair with in 1968. While picking up their respective children from a summer camp in August of 1968, John Hill met Anne Kurth, and the pair began a romantic relationship. One day upon returning home from a horse show outside of Houston, Joan found a note from her husband saying he was leaving her, as things were, quote, not good between us. She tried to get an explanation from her husband, who ignored her calls, and Ash Robinson suggested a private investigator to find out what John was up to. She declined, and two weeks later, the pair met up for a talk, and John admitted to the affair. In November of 1968, John served Joan with divorce papers. Ash, in response, hired that private detective and soon learned that his son-in-law was living in an apartment with his new girlfriend. He reported this information back to Joan, who, wanting to make their marriage work, contested the divorce. The following month, Ash asked John to meet with him and handed his son-in-law a letter of apology, a letter he had written to Joan on John's behalf and wanted him to sign. Reminded of the debt he owed to the Robinson family for both the household and professional expenses, John signed the letter, withdrew the divorce petition, and moved back in with his wife. By Christmas, the couple had reconciled, but John, unbeknownst to Joan, still saw Anne on the side. While John kept his secrets, Joan struggled with her dreams. Chatsworth Farm, never really reaching the level of success that Joan had long envisioned, started to flounder, and by 1969, she was considering a sale when, desperate to make it work, she persuaded a friend named Diane Setagast to come on as a temporary trainer. Around the same time, she found out that her husband was still seeing Anne Kurth. After a particularly heated argument in March of 1969, John left the house and took his son for a haircut and stopped at his secret apartment to pick up a couple of things, something he relayed to his mother upon coming back home. Joan, furious, invited over friend and neighbor Van Maxwell to discuss her current predicament, but when Van arrived, announced an impromptu game of bridge with visiting house guest Diane Setagast and Eunice Woolen. Tensions were high, but Joan, always the perfect hostess, set up the game in John's music room. On one side of the room, John sat listening to music, and on the other sat the women playing their cards. Joan began loudly discussing her husband, and as if he were not there, told the women that she was planning on calling her lawyer on Monday. Van was uncomfortable with this odd situation and asked Joan to lower her voice or she was going to leave. So Joan started to write out notes to her friends instead, 
slipping them across the table and informing them that she was going to have John taken out of her will. After an uneasy evening together, three women trapped between marital strife, John, out of the blue, put on a love song and came over to stand beside his wife. Diane suggested that the pair dance together, which they did, and when they were done, they went off to their bedroom. The next morning, Joan told Diane that John made her, quote, very happy that night and, quote, told me things I've never heard from the man before in our married life. I think it's going to be all right between us from now on. John must have felt the same way because shortly after, he went out and got the girls some pastries, taking careful consideration and handing out each one personally. On March 14, 1969, the Hills attended Houston's annual Wild Game Dinner, where John was playing with his band, The Heartbeats. With the festivities finished, Joan asked her husband if he was going to be staying out. He said that he was, and she reminded him that he had already done so on two previous occasions that week. The conversation quickly turned venomous, and upon arrival at home, Joan got out of the car, stomped to the house, and shouted, You've blown it, John. You've lost your wife, your son, and your goddamn music room. The next day, Diane and Eunice spoke with Joan, who, after waking up late in the afternoon, mentioned a pill that John gave her that knocked her out. After vomiting up her breakfast, Joan opted to stay in bed, and after checking on her several times, John told their guests that he would take them out to dinner to let Joan rest. On their way back, he bought Joan a carton of orange juice and then left to visit a friend. Joan continued to get sick, throwing up several more times and rarely leaving her bed, not even to say goodbye to her house guests who left on March 17th. She assured them that she was going to be all right and Effie Green, the Hill's maid, was told to leave Joan alone and not to disturb her for any reason. She did as she was told and waited until the morning of March 18th to check on Joan. When she did, she found her lying in a soiled nightgown. Wanting to get Joan into something clean, Effie tried to move her and found that she had been lying in dry feces that, upon inspection, seemed to contain blood. Effie led Joan into the bathroom to try and clean her when she saw that her face had gone blue. Horrified, she called for her husband, who also worked for the Hills, and phoned over to Ash for help. There was no answer, and they tried to call John. Ray Robinson, who had never once been told about her daughter's condition, had Ash drop her off at Joan's home none the wiser. She walked into Joan's room and found her lying in a bed filled with waste and vomit, Effie trying her best to help in the situation. By this time, John had arrived home and insisted that his wife be taken to the hospital. He also insisted, for some reason, to drive her instead of calling an ambulance for his semi-conscious wife. John, with Joan in the back, telling her mother she was going blind, drove 45 minutes away, past other medical centers, to Sharpstown General Hospital, a center with no emergency room or intensive care unit at the time of Joan's admission. Upon arrival, Joan's blood pressure was 60 over 40, and after confirming the numbers were not a mistake, summoned Dr. Walter Burntonot, a man John listed as his wife's attending physician. Walter, who was not Joan's doctor and only knew her socially, had no idea how serious Joan's condition was until the nurse called. That's because, according to John, Joan was simply suffering from some nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. When he arrived and saw just how sick she really was, Walter said he believed that she was suffering from a foodborne illness. Getting a second opinion from a colleague who believed that she was in septic shock, 
Walter did whatever he could to try and help Joan Robinson Hill. Taking blood cultures in the process to try and figure out what exactly was causing her body to shut down completely. After just six hours in the hospital, Joan's kidneys began to fail. And because the hospital was without a dialysis machine, the team debated on sending her to the Houston Methodist Hospital, but were worried that the journey would only make matters worse. Wanting to start peritoneal dialysis, the doctors called over to John Hill to get his consent. John received the call at home at around 9.15 p.m. and did not arrive at the hospital until 11 p.m. to give his consent. Joan, upon seeing him, begged him to stay with her. She was terrified. Stabilizing her, the doctors left to get some rest. At around 2.30 a.m. on March 19th, a nurse noted that Joan's vitals were fluctuating in a way that indicated heart failure. She ran to call for the doctor on duty and, as she did, Joan lifted her head and managed to gasp out her husband's name before the blood began rushing out of her mouth. After the residents tried to save her by injecting adrenaline into her heart, her time of death was called. Because Joan died in the hospital, Texas law required that an autopsy be performed prior to any embalming, something you would think John would have been more than happy to partake in considering the mysterious nature of Joan's death. Four hours after she died, a funeral home came and claimed Joan's body, and within the hour, she was embalmed. When the pathologist arrived to carry out the autopsy, he was informed that the body had already been prepared. Because of this, the autopsy came back without finding any signs of what caused Joan's death, aside from a maroon coloration of her pancreas. Ash Robinson wasn't prepared to accept pancreatitis as the cause of death, an opinion backed by the doctors that he consulted. And on March 21st, the day of Joan's funeral, Ash visited the assistant district attorney and accused Dr. John Hill of killing his daughter. The attorney then asked the Harris County Medical Examiner to go to the funeral home and examine the body and demand any blood or urine samples taken. With this information, the medical examiner ruled out poisoning and said that the cause of death was, quote, acute focal hepatitis, probably viral in origin. The DA, upon reading this report, felt as though there was no cause for legal action. Ash refused to believe that John wasn't responsible and hired former Harris County District Attorney Frank Bisco and petitioned John to give permission to exhume Joan's body. Leaving little to chance, Ash hired his own medical examiner to perform the autopsy. And around the same time, a Harris County grand jury met and requested its own autopsy that was performed by 10 doctors and lasted seven and a half hours. Though the autopsies all seemed to know a massive infection, not a single one could determine the source as Joan's body had been embalmed before samples could be taken. Therefore, the exact cause of death was impossible to discern, with some listing it as meningitis and others listing it as sepsis. Regardless, one report, issued in April of 1970, noted with absolute certainty that had John Hill acted quickly upon realizing his wife was sick, seeking specialized medical attention at a more equipped hospital, she would still be alive. John Hill, who, by June of 1969, had married Ann Kurth while his father-in-law launched a campaign against him behind the scenes. In February of 1970, the case was heard by a third grand jury, who heard testimony from none other than Ann Kurth, John's now ex-wife, who said that John had confessed to not only killing his wife, but attempting to do so on at least three different occasions. 
With very little evidence to indict him, but believing he was responsible, the DA decided to try John for not providing Joan with the adequate level of care, which resulted in her death. The jury voted to indict John on murder by omission, and his trial began on February 15, 1971. During the trial, Anne testified that John tried to kill Joan on June 30, 1969, by crashing their car into a bridge and injecting her with a hypodermic needle. She told them how he confessed to killing Joan and had seen three Petri dishes in the bathroom of John's secret apartment around the same time that Joan became ill. When she asked him what was in them, he said he was conducting an experiment and grew angry at her when she found pastries in the apartment's refrigerator and commanded her not to eat them. Unfortunately, Anne's testimony, though helpful for the prosecution, allowed for a mistrial and, while awaiting a second trial, John Hill married for a third time. Delay after delay followed the devastating mistrials as it became clearer and clearer to those who loved Joan that John may just get away with her murder. On September 24, 1972, mere weeks before he was due back in court, John Hill was shot to death by a masked gunman in a robbery gone wrong. He and his new wife, upon returning home from a medical conference in Vegas, were greeted by a man wearing a green mask that, upon first glance, Connie Hill thought was her stepson playing a joke. She had no idea that he and John's mother were inside of the home with their hands and feet bound, tape covering their mouths. Connie was able to get away and call for help, but John was not so lucky. When police arrived, John's 12-year-old son was standing over him, arms still bound, saying, They've killed my daddy. John's mouth, eyes, and nose were covered with tape. He had been beaten and shot three times. The rest of the family were left unscathed. Connie and Robert Hill believed that Ash Robinson, with all of his connections, ordered John's execution and launched a $7.6 million lawsuit against him. Ash denied any responsibility and, after a seven-week hearing in 1977, was cleared of any involvement. In April of 1973, a man named Bobby Wayne Vandiver was arrested for the murder of Dr. John Hill. He confessed to the murder and told police he did so for financial gain, carrying out a contract killing for $5,000. He implicated two other accessories in the murder, but never once mentioned Ash Robinson. Anne Kurth, John's ex-wife, published her own account of the case in which she claimed that John was not only guilty, but still alive and living in Mexico after faking his death. A movie starring Farrah Fawcett was made in 1981 that concurs with her theory, saying that, facing financial problems and knowing the walls of justice were closing around him, John arranged to have a lookalike killed in his place. In an article preceding the film, journalist Jerry Buck noted how the supposed body of John Hill was so battered it made identification almost impossible. That John had a different eye color than what was recorded for the deceased and how a number of John Hill sightings have occurred throughout Mexico and New York City. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on March 20th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.